Blog Talk Radio. I would have had this before I got started. 
you know, I hear the same thing from <clears throat> from the folks who come to the course that are uh, SWAT members or sniper shooters or designated marksmen in the military, etc. Guys that have come through the course and said, "Wow, this is a, I wish I would have had this before I went to sniper school, uh, before I went to designated marksman school." Uh, the same thing with you guys that don't have any connection to uh, military, law enforcement, etc. I guarantee you that this is going to help you by, if you're a uh, deer hunter, this is going to help you by making sure that you have the confidence to make a shot that you might not otherwise make and to be confident that the shot that you're going to make is indeed going to be a, uh, a shot that will take the animal and not wound it, which is very, very important. As hunters, we have a responsibility to cleanly uh, and humanely harvest the animals that we're hunting. And to do that, you have to be sure of your shot placement. And uh, I know that I talk to guys all the time. They tell me, I get a deer every year. And uh, I've heard that plenty of times from plenty of different folks. And deer every year. But what they don't see a lot of times is that that deer may be uh, 40, 50 yards away. Or, uh, I've done it myself, but I have been involved in having to track down uh, animals that weren't taken cleanly. And it's not an enjoyable thing. And it's not, and it's an irresponsible thing. All right? Sometimes you can have mistakes. But it, it, it should be a mistake and not due to your poor marksmanship, all right? So if you're a, if you're a uh, hunter, you have a responsibility to be able to place your shots uh, right where you want them and to humanely and uh, competently take the uh, deer. And make sure that, you're, uh, that you know where, you're, where your round is going to go, not just at the target, but at the target and then beyond. All right, and what we do is we have a two-day course that, for, that uh, when you come to an Appleseed event, it's a two-day course. And the first day on Saturday takes place at 25 meters. And that's, uh, that's not because it's easier to shoot at 25 meters. It's because it's easier to get feedback. You're going to have to go look at your target. In order for you to understand how you're shooting, you have to develop a relationship with your target. You have to be able to go and look at your target, and then you have to understand what your target is telling you. And we're going to teach you all about that in a section called Talking Targets when you come to an apple seed weekend. <clears throat> but you have to be, uh, to be able to understand that the language that the target is speaking to you in, and then you have to be able to go down and look at it. Uh, and 25 meters is a good distance because... <clears throat> Everybody knows that, uh, or, you know, a lot of people don't know. Otherwise, they wouldn't keep talking about 25 meters being for the babies, all right, because uh, because of the ballistics of your of a rifle, whenever you shoot at 25 meters, your bullet's on the rise, and and then it's going to drop down again and cross over the center line again. Uh, if you're shooting a main battle rifle like a... Um, uh, 30 caliber. Uh, it's going to be around uh, around 200 and uh, and 50, 240, 250 meters. If you're shooting a 223. 
uh, it'll probably be closer to 300. So whatever your zero is at 25 meters, you're still going to have a battle site zero, which means you're going to have the same zero <clears throat> for your 250 or uh, for 30 caliber or 300 for your 223. Not only that, <clears throat> but when you're shooting at 25 meters, we're not giving you a trash can lid and say, see if you can hit it. We're teaching you to shoot down to four minutes of arc, all right? Four minutes of arc. That is uh, four two two three holes touching each other. And we want you to be able to fire ten rounds into a one-inch square in 60 seconds. And uh, within that uh, one-inch square. <clears throat> so that you're shooting to four minutes of arc. And I don't care whether you're shooting at 25 meters or you're or 500 meters. Four minutes of arc is four minutes of arc. If you can keep four minutes of arc at, two, at 25 meters, you can keep it at 500 meters. That is the that's the uh, the function of ballistics. If you can keep uh, all of your rounds within a one square at 25 meters, then you can keep all of your rounds within a 20 inch square at 500. That's the that's the mathematics of it. So shooting at 25 meters is not a, uh, a wussy thing. It's actually very smart. You're able to uh, to make continuous adjustments and improve your uh, the skill, be able to put the skills and techniques that we show you to use and that get immediate feedback from them uh, by, uh, by going down 25 meters, taking a look at your target, deciphering what your target is telling you, and then applying that to the next course of fire. So on Saturday... We're going to teach you uh, uh, everything. That we're going to teach you is basically going to boil down into uh, into three categories, and the first of, of which is building a stable shooting position. Without a stable shooting position, all else with your rifle is for naught. All right. If you cannot keep your rifle steady while you're shooting, it doesn't matter what else you do because uh, you hitting the target is going to be uh, Russian roulette. So the first thing we're going to teach you is how to build a stable shooting position. Not a comfortable position, but a uh, repeatable position. And uh, once you've learned that, then we're going to teach you the six steps to firing the shot. Once you've learned that, we're going to teach you about determining your natural point of aim and shifting it onto the target. And then we're also going to throw in... uh, uh, Talking targets, like I told you earlier, how to diagnose what's going on uh, when you're at the range shooting. Because a lot of people go to the range, and they get their 20 rounds, and they put up a target, and uh, they're, they're really, uh, they really have no good idea about what they're doing at the range. They, un- they understand that they're going to, they can mechanically work their firearm, and they can go put a target up, and then they can uh, put their sights on it in some fashion and begin firing, and they they understand some of the rudimentary things. If they're putting their sights right on the target and their group is consistently, uh, say it's the size of, at 100 yards, it's the size of a 50-cent uh, uh, piece, and it's off to the right uh, uh, three inches, then, you know, they know that uh, they need to move, they need to adjust their sights. But... Uh, 
but anything else, it's going to be hard for them to understand what they're supposed to do next or why they're there. We're going to teach you the skills and techniques for becoming a rifleman, and then every time you go to the range, you're going to be practicing those skills and those techniques. And then whenever you go down and you look at your target, you're going to be able to understand that language that the target is speaking to you in. You're going to be able to speak targetese, and you're going to be able to diagnose uh, some of the things that you might be doing wrong. Obviously, if you go and look at your target, <clears throat> and uh, you have a extremely straight up and down vertical line right through the center of your target, <clears throat> then uh, the uh, the most common thing that comes to mind might be that uh, you might be breathing. You may not be uh, firing at your respiratory pause, or you may not be stopping your breathing uh, while you're shooting. Now, obviously, you, you, it's something you have to do. If you're breathing, then your whole body's moving. There is no, absolutely no way to stop it. If you're breathing, your rifle is moving. If your rifle is moving while you're trying to shoot, uh, I, I highly uh, recommend your rifle not moving while you're shooting, okay? So if you go down and look at the target and you see a, a uh, straight up and down pattern of uh, of holes in the paper, then in, there's a good chance it's telling you that you need to concentrate on your breathing. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> on top of this, we're also going to speak to you about one of the most important days in America's history. We're going to talk to you about April 19th, 1775. And uh, and I know that there's going to be some folks out there that are listening to this, uh, and the first time, the first thing they're going to think of is April 19th, 1775. What is that? It sounds familiar, but what is that? <clears throat> because uh, because I studied history quite a bit uh, when I was younger, uh, but I stopped uh, probably 40, 50 years short of the American Revolutionary War. And because of that, uh, April 19th, 1775, uh, didn't hardly mean anything to me. So I know that there are some people that are going to be wondering what that date is. Well, that date is the actual birth date of our nation. <clears throat> That's a day that, that men and women stood together in ranks uh, at different locations in uh, uh, Massachusetts, <clears throat> at uh, Lexington Green, at the North Bridge in Concord, and uh, all along Battle Road, back to Boston. <clears throat> That's the day that our nation was born. That's uh, the uh, American, the history of the United States of America begins on that date. <clears throat> Before that date, there was not an America. Before that date, we were simply uh, uh, a British colony. Now, the, it was called the Americas, but it was a British colony. You're going to find out about <clears throat> the events of April 19, 1775. You're going to find out who the players were, what they did, and why they did it. And then... Uh, You'll probably also hear about some of the some of the ideas, some of the visions that the founding fathers had for us. <clears throat> now, at Appleseed, we don't uh, we don't get involved in politics. 
We don't get involved in any kind of tactics. Uh, there's no army playing. <clears throat> we don't do any training. As far as training implying that uh, we're teaching you something to be used at a later date. All right? What we're doing is we're giving you a rock solid foundation in the fundamentals of rifle marksmanship. And then we're going to talk to you about the beginning of the nation. Now, when I say that, we don't talk about any politics. Uh, we don't talk about any politics uh, newer than, say, 230 years ago. All right. Uh, it doesn't matter what uh, what uh, letter uh, you may put in front of your name or after your name. If it's an R or an L or a D uh, or an I or a uh, a little R or a big R or a little D or a big D, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> the heritage of rifle marksmanship belongs to everyone. Just like the Constitution, Appleseed uh, is a not the uh, is not owned by any particular party. Uh, we welcome all uh, folks of all political persuasions. Uh, now, we're not going to uh, we're not going to have any discussion of politics while you're there. So you can just uh, you can keep your uh, uh, your voter's registration card in your pocket. <clears throat> But you'll be welcome there. We welcome families, women, children. We welcome folks of all races. No matter how many times the uh, the mainstream media has tried to portray Appleseed as uh, as some kind of a a haven for uh, white Cro-Magnon uh, right wing rock throwers, <clears throat> that's simply not the case. Uh, some of my best instructors are uh, are fervent Democrats, and yet uh, they still believe, as every American should, that the Constitution <clears throat> is for everyone, and Appleseed is for everyone. The right to uh, to have a firearm and to take it uh, and you to use it in lawful means belongs to everyone. Now, we're not going to get in a bunch of big discussions about uh, uh, Second Amendment or First Amendment uh, or anything like that, freedoms or anything else at the event, because we're going to cover that and the history that we're going to talk to you about. It's going to be very uh, very evident from listening to the history uh, about the reasons that the folks decided on April 19, 1775, to stand in ranks and defend their freedoms and liberties. Uh, I encourage each and every one of you, you know, the, the Appleseed folks, now, once they've heard about the history, uh, most everybody uh, most everybody realizes at their second introduction to it, usually later in life, or even at their first when they're youngsters, if they come to an Appleseed, that our history is very rich, very exciting. And after the... Uh, the couple of hours uh, taste you're going to get at it at the two-day event that you're going to want more. So <clears throat> I encourage you to seek out an Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship event <clears throat> and and take the opportunity to set a goal for yourself to improve your rifle marksmanship. 
because I guarantee you, if you go to a two-day Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship Clinic, you're going to meet and exceed that goal. You are going to improve your rifle marksmanship. <clears throat> and I can't tell you over the course of the last uh, almost six years now how many times I've heard folks say that they don't need that, they don't need the uh, they don't need to improve because <clears throat> by a cracky they've been they've been shooting all their lives and uh, and they are just crack shots and I'm telling you I've done a lot of events now and the one thing that is uh, that is common across the board is that <clears throat> nobody does as good as they think they're going to do when they get here on Saturday morning. Because the first thing we do is, uh, without any instruction, we put you down on the line and you shoot the red coat target. That's the uh, 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 the red coat target is a 13-round course. You've got five targets. You have a uh, simulated uh, 100 200, 300, and 400 yard silhouette, and then you have a small one inch square. <clears throat> and you have to put three rounds into each of the silhouettes in succession to determine what level of shooter you're at. So, say for instance, you shoot uh, three rounds into the 100 yard target and only two into the 200 yard target, then really. You're only a 100-yard shooter. That means that uh, if somebody's out past 100 yards, you know, there's a 50-50 chance that uh, you're not going to hit them. And when I say somebody, I'm speaking in uh, Revolutionary War uh, parlance. <clears throat> and uh, because that's what the the target and the setup is. It's for you to determine if you had if you were there on the line at – on uh, uh, April 19th, 1775, how you would have done right then and there. Paul Revere just came riding by and said, the regulars are out. They're right behind me. And you got down the line and started shooting. That's how you would have done. And we use that as a diagnostic tool to see how the folks are, how they, the folks that show up, how they, uh, their rifle skills are. And, and I'm telling you, like I said, it, it never fails that everybody is a bit surprised at uh, how unwell they do. There's a great many folks who show up who can't even put three rounds into the target at 100 yards. <clears throat> and historically, that means that if you were uh, on the line at Lexington and Concord, and you couldn't uh, put a round into the target at 100 yards. <clears throat> Actually, it'd be 70. But <clears throat> if you couldn't put a round into the target there, <clears throat> then uh, the regulars with their bayonets could be within your ranks and uh, sticking that uh, that sharpened steel into you. So. <clears throat> You need to uh, you need to make sure that uh, you can at least uh, get all three rounds into the 100 yard target to keep the British regular regulars 
from sticking a sharpened steel spike into you. <clears throat> All right. Uh, so I told you now, you need to set yourself a a goal of improving your rifle marksmanship, of carrying on the heritage, the tra- tra- tradition of rifle marksmanship. So now the next question that should be in your minds is, well, okay, you're right. I've listened to what you said, and I certainly agree that I have a responsibility to do this. So where can I find this at? Where can I find a location? Well, I'll tell you what you can do. You can go to rwva.org. That's our website, our homepage, rwva.org. And at the uh, top of the page, there's a row of tabs going across. The second from the left says Appleseed. Put your cursor on the Appleseed. You'll get a drop-down menu. On the drop-down menu, select Schedule. And uh, it'll take you to a page that has a map of the United States. Now, you can put your cursor on the state that you wish to attend an event at and uh, and click on it, and it will give you a listing of the events in that state. Uh, if you live in a, uh, like, close to a border and you want to see the events in a couple of states, then there's a hot link embedded in the text above the map. You can click on that for a listing of all the events nationwide. Now, once you've found the event that you would like to attend, <clears throat> don't just uh, don't just think about attending an event. Most folks' lives are filled up with uh, "I would, I should have, I could have, I should have done this." Don't let this uh, become uh, a part of that list. Things you wished you would have done. I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have set myself a goal of improving my rifle marksmanship and gone to a rifle, uh, an Appleseed rifle marksmanship course. I wish I would have. <clears throat> uh, instead, make sure it gets on the list of things that you're determined to do. And when you take a look at this list, don't just uh, think that maybe I could or maybe I should or Maybe someday I, I, I can or something like that. Go ahead and select the event and the date that you want to attend and pre-register for it. Get your place on the line guaranteed. Now, if you look at the location, once you've selected the lo- location, there are two hot links to the right of it. One says info. Now, that will give you the information for that specific event on that specific date. Once you've uh, got all that worked out, go ahead and pre-register. There's another hot link that says register. Now, by pre-registering, for one thing, you've kept your price down. Uh, you've knocked 10 bucks off your price from a walk-on. You've made sure that you can get on the line. Walk-ons, in most cases, they can get on the line, but I, I wouldn't bet everything on it. I'd go ahead and pre-register. If I'm going to go to an event, I'm just going to go ahead and pre-register for the event. I'm going to make sure that I've got a place on the line. I'm going to pay my money ahead of time. I'm going to have everything worked out. I'll have my hotel reservations made, whatever. I'm going to, I'm going to do that ahead of time. I'm not going to wait till the last minute. So pre-register for the event. This does a couple of things. One, and make sure you have a, that you have a place on the line. And two, make sure that we know that you're coming. Uh, some of the events have limited numbers of spaces. 
and uh, we also determine how many instructors we're going to send by looking at the pre-reg numbers. Uh, if there's more folks, then we schedule more instructors. Uh, if there's less folks, then uh, then uh, we may schedule a few less instructors. Plus, we have to ship all of the supplies out for that event. We have to make sure that we've got uh, porta potties, uh, that we've got uh, uh, any of the uh, extra stuff that we'll need for for more folks. <clears throat> there have been several times when we have uh, filled up every bit of line we had there, but more people wanted to come, and because they did, we secured additional space. But you know what? I can guarantee you that we won't secure additional space, and we don't know that you're coming. And the only way we're going to know that you're coming is if you pre-register. So make sure, once you've got it in your head, once you've accepted the responsibility of improving yourself, improving your life, your life situation, by setting yourself a goal of improving your rifle marksmanship, and then seeking out a place at rwva.org, seeking out a place uh, to do this, and then getting pre-registered, and you've got uh, about half of the uh, about half of the equation done. The reason I say half is because just uh, taking care of yourself is not good enough. All right, just making sure that you have set a goal and that you have determined that uh, it might be a good idea for you to uh, improve your rifle marksmanship and carry on the heritage of uh, becoming a rifleman. That's not good enough because the world isn't made up of just you, all right? What you really need to do is once you've decided you, that you're ready to go and you got yourself pre-registered, then uh, you look around. look Start in your house, look around and go, okay, somebody, somebody's coming with me to this. By cracky, somebody's coming with me. It may be your wife. It may be one of your kids or your dad or your mom. But by gosh, somebody, you're taking somebody with you. All right? It may be your neighbor, but somebody's going to come with you. You're not going to go do this alone. You're not going to shoulder the responsibility of uh, uh, of helping to carry on a tradition and helping to uh, uh, safeguard the freedoms and liberties that living in this nation affords you by yourself. All right? That's just not the way that it works. So once you've got yourself geared up and ready to go, uh, select who's coming with you, and get them geared up and get them coming. This helps you, uh, helps you save money on gas. you got to split the gas. Most hotel rooms come with two beds. Uh, why pay for the other one if you're not going to use it? Get somebody else and uh, split the hotel room. Long drives, short drives, any drive is better with a friend. All right? And you're sitting there in the vehicle, you can be talking about your favorite firearms. You can start talking about uh, what you plan on uh, uh, on achieving at the event. You can talk to each other about the things that uh, in the future that you two might do together to help safeguard the freedoms and liberties that living in this nation affords you. All right? Two is better than one. So once you've decided to come to an event, make sure that uh, make sure you t- you've got somebody else who understands it's their sacred responsibility to come with you. All right, 
Now, in the unlikely event that uh, you can't find somebody, don't worry. Because one of the things that you're going to find at an Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship event is you're going to be standing shoulder to shoulder with the best folks this nation has to offer you. All right? Uh, I don't know what it is about uh, uh, specifically about Appleseed, other than, uh, than we have a mission. We have a mission, and uh, and it's right. It's just. And because of that, it seems that we draw folks who have that same uh, that same sense of character, the rightness and justness, and they are good folks. You come to an apple seed, you're going to meet the cream of the crop that uh, the country has to offer. The rest of the folks, the people that are worthless, no goods, uh, including uh, your so-called friends who aren't going to come with you, they're going to be sitting at home. You won't see them in an apple seed. Because getting up and doing something to improve their lives is just way too much for them to do. It's way too heavy for them to do. I've told you before that most of this nation lives its life sitting on the sofa with a remote control, living out their life in 30-minute sitcoms, clicking from one to the next. With a sitcom, you've got a nice, happy, smiley group of folks, and uh, everybody's laughing, everything's happy, and then some type of drama is introduced. But within that 30-minute period, that drama is successfully resolved, and everyone is happy and smiling and clapping again by the end of the 30 minutes. Life is good, and you can click to the next one, and then the one after that. You can live your life in a succession of 30-minute situational comedies, and you don't have to think about anything else. Just go grab another beer, get that remote. Turn on that situational comedy. Turn on that sports game. And I'm not. Uh, I don't got anything against sports. I'm just saying that watching sports in and of itself doesn't do anything to help you. Doesn't do anything to help the nation. And we have a responsibility, folks. We we have been handed this nation. It's been it's been transferred from those who came before us. To us, I told you many times before that this country doesn't belong to the government, uh, at least the government as far as most people want to quantify it or understand it. The government is not the president. The government is not the senators or the congressmen or any of the alphabet acronym agencies. The government, at least a small portion of it, I get to see at least once a month standing on the line at an Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship course. I see those Americans who've taken it upon themselves to accept the responsibility and shoulder the responsibility of safeguarding the freedoms and liberties that living in this nation affords them. And they're going to become involved, and they're going to become uh, the, the folks, the very, very few who actually make a difference in the nation. The rest of America seems to be so much uh, so much dust and chafe. <clears throat> All throughout history, every single time there was an important event a, a, that, that America's destiny rested and balanced on a knife's edge, the results were determined by a handful 
of determined men and women, a handful of determined patriots. When you start coming to apple seeds, that's the category you're going to put yourself in. That's where you're going to end up. And uh, when you come to an apple seed rifle marksmanship event, <clears throat> like I said, it's going to it's going to be very simple at first because you're going to set yourself a goal of improving your rifle marksmanship. And as I said, it's guaranteed that you're going to do that. Guaranteed you're going to improve. And then a little bit later on, you're going to understand that that there's going to be some more that we're going to ask of you, all right? And that is we're going to ask that you become a working member of the government. Now, I told you, all the folks that I've seen that showed up at Appleseeds are all good folks. But that doesn't mean that every one of them accepted their responsibility that was entrusted to them. A lot of the people don't, uh, they don't, it's too much for them, at least at some of their first events. Because once you understand, until you know that there's a problem, then uh, then no one can really fault you for not for not doing something about it, right? Uh, if you're in your house and the barn's on fire and you don't know, well, then how is it your fault that that you don't do something about it because you don't know that it's going on? But if you if you're in your house and someone comes to you and they tell you, you know, hey, your barn's on fire, all right, now you have two choices. That's all there is. You've got two choices. One, you can continue to sit on your couch with your remote flipping through the the situational comedies, all right, and just deny that there's a problem, deny that uh, that there's anything that you can do or that there's anything that you can do about the barn being on fire and just ignore it, and then the barn will burn to the ground, guaranteed. <clears throat> or you can stand up and you go, listen, thanks. Thank you for telling me that the barn was on fire. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known, and now I'm going to go do something about it. And the only problem with that is that when somebody tells you the barn's on fire, there's no way uh, there's no way. It's not going to put itself out. I mean, you got to do something about it. And for a lot of folks, that is that's very hard for them to accept that they're going to have to actually do something about it. A lot of folks have put all their trust in uh, in other people, and they just expect uh, uh, things to be taken care of by others. And the problem with that is <clears throat> the duty that you have to safeguard the freedoms and liberties that living in this, in this nation affords you is it can't be, it's a responsibility that can't be delegated. You can't delegate it to anybody. You can't delegate it to uh, your mom or your dad or your kids or uh, the guy that lives down the street. You can't delegate your responsibilities to anybody. It has to be you. In the end... You are the only person that you can trust. You're the only person that knows what your specific needs are. You're the only person that knows best 
uh, how to spend your own money, right? Uh, I can just imagine the answers I would get or the looks I would get if I came to your house and I said, hey, listen, I don't know you, uh, and I don't really know what your needs are or anything else, but uh, (laughs) I've determined that uh, I know best how to spend your money, so why don't you go ahead and just hand it over to me, and I'm going to spend it for you, and, and, uh, you know, I'm sure things are going to work out fine. Is there anybody listening that would uh, look at me and say, hey, that's a great idea. Hold on. Let me go get the money for you. Because that's ridiculous. Well, it's no different with your freedoms and your liberties. Why in the world, who in their right mind would hand over their freedoms and their liberties to someone uh, to someone else, no matter how well-intentioned? And, and it's no different than saying... Uh, your neighbor. I really like my neighbor, and I really trust my neighbor. I do. At the same time, I'm not going to get everything I own and sign it over to him and say, I trust that you'll make the right decisions, all right? Because it's my family. It's my wife. It's my kids. It's it's my responsibility. It's the same thing with this nation. It's the same sacred responsibility that you have for your family is for this nation because listen let me tell you something if uh, if things continue to go in the the direction that they're going and and believe me I'm not talking about any particular party uh, because in my eyes they're all uh, they're all wolves in the hen house and uh, if things continue to go in the direction that they're going now, we're not going to have anything to hand over to our children other than uh, other than debt and bondage. Is that what you want for your kids, for your sons or your daughters, your grandkids, your nieces, your great-nieces, your, your nephews? Do you want to look at them uh, at the end of your days and say, you know, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, kids, sorry, nieces and nephews, uh, I really should have paid more attention to safeguarding their freedom and liberties. But because I didn't, well, I've kind of left you with a lifetime of debt and bondage. So, I hope that all works out well for you. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to kick the bucket here in a minute, so my problems are over, and uh, and the country the the wreck that uh, that uh, is this country is it's now your trouble. Okay, gotta go. See you. Bye. Is that the legacy uh, that you're going to leave for your children? <clears throat> for those who came after, because. That could have happened to you. That could have been done to you. That's what could have been handed to you, but it wasn't. We can't hand that to our kids. <clears throat> All right. Uh, if you'd like to call in, we'd like to. Uh, we'd love to hear your your uh, have your calls uh, at the beginning of the show. Now I realize I kind of ranted for a good thirty minutes here. Uh, 
If you'd like to call in, we'd be glad to take your calls. And uh, this is a portion of the show, the beginning of the show, or uh, the middle of it now, that uh, where when you want to call in and tell folks uh, thank you or congratulations if they have passed a uh, an instructor PC, an instructor progress check, uh, if they've gotten a, uh, a a orange hat or a red hat or a green hat or a blue hat or whatever color, uh, if they have uh, shot the rifle in standards, if they've shoot-bossed their first event, uh, if they did a great job in promoting uh, some local events, anything at all. And listen, everybody has somebody, all right? Everybody has somebody. I want to thank uh, uh, Andrew and Lauren and uh, Kirk, and uh, the rest of the Dallas crew, Chris Berry, uh, for the work that they've done up there in Dallas. They uh, they started off with one small range, uh, the uh, Quill Creek in DFW, and uh, and because it only held about 22 people, they uh, managed to sweet talk the owners into building uh, a completely uh, separate section. Uh, for uh, I think it'll hold about uh, 25 folks on uh, the other side of the range that was a dedicated uh, Appleseed range there. So Appleseed has its own range there at Quill Creek now because of the dedicated efforts of Double uh, uh, L and Star Fox and Spit Sickler and the rest of the Dallas crew. Not only that, they weren't happy with just the uh, the one venue there, so they managed to. Uh, uh, rack up two more venues there in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And there's no reason that, with the population that Dallas has, there's no reason that we couldn't have five locations doing a 100 people a month every month of the year and uh, never run out of folks who need to go to an apple seed. All right? So they've done an excellent job there. And uh, any of the rest of you guys that would like to call in, and uh, thank uh, any of your local crews or, or anybody, really. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be a local crew. It could be one of your buddies across the nation that just sent you a, uh, a message saying, hey, I just uh, shot the rifle in the standards, or hey, I just got my red hat, or whatever. Then now's the time to do it. 347-308-8790. 347-308-8790. All right. And uh, like the call screener says, when you call, I imagine you'll get some kind of pre-recorded instructions. I believe there is. I'm not sure. I, I haven't called in uh, to the show because I'm already on the other line as a host. But I believe you'll get some pre-recorded instructions. Yeah, and even if you don't, once you uh, uh, once you get logged in on the line, the call screener is going to uh, open uh, open your line and just ask you. Uh, what you're calling about now he's doing this off the air all right so don't worry about uh, if you don't want to be on the air don't worry about talking because you're going to be off the air so please uh answer him and let him know what it is you want because uh <clears throat> and that way i'll know all right because maybe you want to talk and uh and i don't know that you want to talk if, if you don't answer him and and he can put it into my uh, uh into the switchboard box so i can see it that says you want to talk Maybe you don't want to talk, and if you don't want to talk, 
then I don't want to open up your mic and ask you five or six times uh, if you're there. So be sure and answer him. <clears throat> when you call in, be sure and answer him uh, when he asks you uh, who you are or, or uh, what you need. So the number is 347 
Uh, he hasn't actually yet, but uh, we border right over there to uh, him quite frequently. Okay. Well, sing them out. Name name their names. Yep. Give them some. Give name them. Their them. Okay. So uh, so Idaho. Uh, congratulations to uh, Roland, uh, one of the uh, junior uh, Red Hats now, um, being uh, under uh, eighteen actually. He's, oh, uh, well, great. Congratulations. Uh, yep. What was her name? Roland on the forums. Rowind? Roland. Roland. Okay. All right. Yep. And mm-hmm. uh, then um, Only Hits Count in Washington has uh, been added as a red hat. Okay. Congratulations, him. Only Hits Count. And Only he's a count. brand new red hat. Welcome to uh, the... Uh, Welcome yep. to the Red Hat crew. That'd be her. Her. Okay. All right. Okay. Hard to tell. And, that was a kind of a uh, non-gen- non-gender name. Yes, it, it can be hard. Um, <laughs> then we had uh, um, Orange Hats of uh, Fire Driver and Sparks SS and... Um, Forum name's a little hard to decipher. Probably something uh, important in uh, military shorthand, but with all the uh, mostly letters and numbers jumbled, I'm just going to go by his uh, given name of Bobby. Okay. Um, <laughs> really hard to read that forum name. God and bless him, I, but uh, sometimes the folks that they come up with these names that uh, are certainly difficult uh, like to type, especially folks that have uh, mixed... Uh, like capitals and numbers and everything else in their names. Uh huh. And so, yep he he also took a uh, an orange hat. So that's three orange hats, um, uh, all in the past month, and then uh, the three red hats. Well, excellent. <clears throat> How are the venues uh, working out there in Washington? Are you guys able to add any uh, new venues lately? Uh, we're working on one uh, in the um, Seattle uh, Olympia generalized region. Um, it sounds like it's probably not a good uh, future place. Um, unfortunately, we're uh, losing, uh, for an indeterminate amount of time, Wade's uh, DAR. Um, it's always, or almost always, a full um site almost every time right. he holds a shoot there it's it's almost full. So that's gonna be a that's gonna be a loss to be felt. Um so we're working on trying to replace that one while uh he works out uh some things there. And uh added a few shoots to the uh Yakima Moxie uh shooting range. And I believe that our state coordinator, Ot Sixon, is working on looking for some replacements. Um added a new range just this year at uh, Medical Lake, uh, which is really small, but fantastically well-supported. Okay. Well, that sounds great. How many uh, events did you guys run this year? Do you happen to know off the top of your head? No, uh, unfortunately, I don't know that number. Okay. Well... How is it looking for uh, April 19th weekend? 
this coming year. Are you guys uh, already getting your ranges uh, locked in place and getting ready to do your promo and stuff, right? Um, I'm not sure how far into that uh, Sixon is. I believe he is making some uh, some efforts to make some push. I just don't know how successful he's been and in, in what he has managed to get locked in yet at this point. Right, and sometimes the ranges, uh, the uh, public ranges and stuff, or even sometimes private ranges and stuff, they don't they won't open the books until January one, uh, you know, to let you schedule. You know, they'll just yeah. do it one year at a time, and they'll open the books again in January, and then you got to jump in then. Well, congratulations, because it sounds like you guys uh, have got a very active program there in Washington with uh, three new oranges and two new red hats, right? Uh, three. Did I have that backwards? Three. Okay, three red hats yeah, and three. Three and three. Okay, three, three oranges. Three in the okay. last month. Well, that's great. That is really great. What else, uh, anybody else that you want to uh, uh, say thanks to or any uh, any exciting new news in Washington State? Well, Scott uh, Sixon is our state coordinator is doing a pretty good job. And, uh, of course, uh, Reform Redneck and uh, his crew, uh, all the thanks that they can get, uh, especially for uh, helping out as often as they do. Uh, coming over and holding events and shootboxing events here in Washington. So right. they, and they deserve all the uh, thanks that they can get. And I'm surprised that they do that because they, they, that family only has like one or two instructors, right? Um, they are now up to uh, three, four red hats and one orange hat. <laughs> so just, just a little bit of uh, instructing skill there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and there's certainly a a valuable part of Appleseed. Let me give them my thanks too to uh, Reform Redneck and and the rest of the crew out there because uh, they do a great job. Not just out on the line, but they do a great job with uh, w- within the administrative part of Appleseed too. So yeah, the thanks to them. Portion there and everything, and uh, Reform Redneck has just been a fantastic uh, resource to help uh, train and teach up uh, everybody here. Um, and just so many different things uh, right now. He's he's one of uh, two active uh, shoot bosses in the entire Pacific Northwest three-state area here. So without him, yeah, th- this section of Appleseed would be really hard put. Right. Well, hopefully we're not going to have to do without him. So. Yeah, we um, hope so. We're thankful for that. All right, well, I really appreciate the uh, I really appreciate you calling in, and so do the folks that uh, that you mentioned. Because, like I said, we we ask a lot of our folks, and a lot of times it gets treated they get treated like uh, like the folks in the military do, which is you you go out there and you give 100 percent, 110 percent, 150 percent, 100 you know, and it's just considered part of your job, all right? But but everybody likes to know that the time that they're vote, devoting, the effort that they're devoting is being recognized and that people do recognize that uh, that they are giving a lot. So that's why I think it's so important for for you guys to call in and tell the folks thanks because uh, it's all a volunteer job. Nobody's going to get a paycheck that's going to tell them how much they're appreciated. So it's nice to know. It's nice for folks risen to hear you say thanks to them. So thank you very much for that. 
Yeah, you're welcome. They they deserve it and they need it. All right. Well, listen. Uh, be sure and keep calling in so that uh, so that you can let me know how it's going out in uh, the Pacific Northwest. All right, I'll do that. All right. Well, thank you, and uh, and I'm hopefully I'll talk to you between between now and uh, Christmas. But if I don't, have a uh, have a Merry Christmas, and uh, and I look forward to hearing uh, more about your cruise and stuff in the next few weeks and in the next year. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Risen. Mm-hmm. Bye. <clears throat> like I said, folks. Uh, uh, it's good for folks to hear that you saw them doing a good job, that you knew, you know that they're doing a good job, that you appreciate the time and effort that they're devoting. It, it's it's very easy to do. I mean, it just takes a couple of seconds. Uh, punch a few numbers in on a phone. We'll get you on the air. You can say your piece. You can tell uh, everybody uh, everybody that's listening. Uh, and usually there's uh, uh, there's at least a thousand or so folks that are going to hear uh, you say thanks. So uh, so it's not a little thing. It's never a little thing. Uh, like we were talking the other night uh, with uh, Jimmy uh, out in New Mexico about getting a letter uh, when you're a uh, uh, an American soldier serving overseas somewhere. I'm telling you, when I got a letter, even it didn't matter who it was from. But when I got a letter, when we were standing there at mail call, and I heard my name called out, holy smokes, it's a, uh, it is a huge thing. So hearing your voice uh, tell somebody thank you is not a meaningless thing, right? It's a big thing. All right, so now we've got another voice that, uh, uh, that uh, wants to say something, and that's Unbridled Liberty. Welcome to the show, Unbridled Liberty. Hi, Scout. How are you tonight? I'm doing great. How about yourself? Doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Uh, we're up here in Kentucky, and um, we're having a little bit of cool weather right now. Uh, I wanted to uh, I wanted to mention a a young woman in Kentucky who knows what she is about tonight. Um, our newest rifle woman uh, is Mag Loader. And uh, I want to just congratulate her. And uh, she is a extremely persistent young lady. And she's also uh, our newest orange hat. And uh, she is going to make an excellent instructor and a shoot boss someday. So I just want to thank her and uh, for taking the hat and congratulate her for persisting and getting that rifle woman score. Okay, what was the name again? Mag Loader. Mag Loader. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know, I was joking with a friend of mine who was out the last weekend, and it was cold. It was a cold, blustery day, cold, windy day, and he brought his wife uh, along to shoot. She was supposed to shoot, but it, it was so cold and uh, and windy. And, you know, I say that so cold and windy, relatively cold and windy. It was like uh, in the low 40s, but it, but with a, a good wind. And when you're used to 90s, uh, then when you hit the 40s, we're talking about 50-degree drop in temperature, you know. 
That's no different than uh, if it was 20 degrees uh, when you're used to 70. So it was fairly cold. Anyway, his his wife didn't want to get out of the truck. Uh, so I was joking with him. I said, uh, "So you, I said, that was a good, that was a smart move to bring along somebody to uh, load your mags while you're shooting. And uh, so maybe that's what uh, she used to do, was be a mag loader. And now she's a rifle woman. So congratulations, mag loader. And... Uh, and congratulations for uh, accepting the responsibility uh, for becoming an instructor. And she is all fired up and really wants to instruct, and, and that's what we need in Kentucky right now. And uh, I'm just extremely thankful for her. She's extremely encouraging to me. And well, uh, tell her that I said that I send my congratulations and my personal well wishes uh, for her, and uh, and that uh, if there's anything that I can do to help her along, be sure to send me a uh, a message on the forum, and I will be more than happy to help out in any way that I can. That goes for anybody out there. That goes for you too. Uh, if you got if there's something I can do for you, just let me know. I'll be more than happy to do it. Okay, Scott, I'll keep that in mind. And uh, I, I want to tell you that uh, you have inspired. Uh, FMJ, who's another orange hat in Kentucky, just so happens to be my son, but you've inspired him to want to take uh, a road trip to Davila, Texas on his <laughs> spring break. Well, listen, he is more than uh, more than welcome here. We'll be more than happy to uh, uh, to get him here, and we'll be happy to put him up and extend uh, uh, some uh, uh uh, I'm, I'm doing three things at once again, so I lost my place. Anyway, extend some Texas hospitality uh, to your son, and uh, and see if uh, if there's any way that at the last minute you can break free and hop in the uh, vehicle with him. Oh yeah, definitely. We're going to come together. But the thing is, the neat thing is, he asked me if we could do that, and uh, I thought, yeah, hey, that's a great idea. So we're making tentative plans and the check and the shoot schedule and so forth, but uh, we'll see if we can get get down there and see you guys. And Excellent. I also want to I want to send a thanks out, a big thanks to both the Ohio and the Indiana crews for coming down and helping us over this past year. Um, we just had our last shoot um, at, at Crittenden, Kentucky, and we had Slim and Dry Fire come down. I just wanted to thank them. Uh, for doing that, and that's not the first time, certainly, that they've come down and helped us this year. They've come down many times and helped us out. And um, also wanted to thank uh, Hindsight, who's one of our own uh, Kentucky Orange Hats, for coming out to the Crittenden shoot and helping us out. And uh, also FMJ, I want to thank him for coming out, too. Uh, Let's see, well, yeah. I'm going to take a look at the... Uh... I'll take a look at the schedule too, because uh, because maybe there's a way that I can uh, can swing it to get over there too. Oh, that'd be great. We would love to have you here. Yeah, I'd love and, to uh, uh, to get to Kentucky again and uh, and meet all of the crews and stuff there. I'd uh, I'd love to do that. I'd actually, I'd love to I'd love to to take a uh, you know I don't know a thousand stop uh, trip across the nation and meet everybody, but 
that's kind of rough to do. But there are certainly a lot of places that uh, they can use an extra hand now and then. I know Kentucky's one of those. You guys got a great program starting, but uh, everybody needs a little bit of help in the beginning to uh, to keep the machine rolling and build it uh, nice and big and strong. Yeah, we we do need help, and um, Indiana especially, both Ohio and, and Indiana. I, but I I want to. I already, uh, you know, I thanked uh, Swim and Dry Fire from Ohio, but I really want to extend a big thanks to Yellow House Jake in Indiana and Mudcat, and certainly not just those two, but the entire Indiana crew has been extremely supportive, and I can't tell you how much we appreciate that down here. And I'm looking forward to continuing working with them in Ohio uh, over the next year so. I'll get off here, and I just want to thank you again for doing the show, Scout, and hope to see you uh, maybe uh, maybe next spring. And uh, you take care. All right. Thank you very much, and Bride Liberty. Listen, you guys, keep the faith. Keep uh, pushing like you're pushing, and uh, don't let up. And, yeah, I'll see you guys uh, either at uh, uh, in the spring or before. All right. Looking forward to it. All right, you take care of yourself, brother. All right, good night. Uh, bye-bye. <clears throat> All right. Uh, okay, there you go. I think that, uh, let me check the, okay. Uh, most of the rest of the folks are just listening. Uh, we'll still take calls. We'll take calls at the end of the show. If you want to call in, we'll be glad to take your calls. 347-308-8790. 347-308-8790. Now, before we get to the the prisons and stuff, I have uh, a couple of things I want to say that uh, uh, that is... you know, there's always, anytime you have any organization, there's always something going on in it, you know. Uh, I wish that weren't the case, but there, it appears that uh, there's always something <clears throat> uh, going on in uh, some organization, and usually it's good. And But every once in a while, there's things that aren't so great, and uh, and and sometimes it can be helped, and sometimes it can't be helped. But uh, I got to tell you that uh, that a lot of the stuff that goes on could be could be uh, helped by folks acting like gentlemen. Uh, and it, that seems like it's such uh, it's an easy thing to say. And it seems like it would just be a very simple thing to do, but apparently it's uh, it's not that simple sometimes, I guess, because a lot of times folks don't act like gentlemen. Uh, and I'm always amazed that uh, when sometimes uh, when folks come into a volunteer organization that uh, that they in some way feel that they can then dictate uh, the way a volunteer organization is run. Uh, when you come into an organization, it's already set up. It's already running. And 
And if you're not happy with the way that the organization is running or by its uh, policies or regulations or something, then it's a volunteer organization. That means as easy as you volunteer yourself in, you can volunteer yourself out. And I've never understood the folks who uh, who uh, appear to have some uh, dissatisfaction with an organization who just uh, hang on and hang on just so that they can continually gripe and complain about it. Not only that, but it seems lately with the advent of uh, social media that we have folks uh, who are just determined to uh, say the most uh, uh, the most hateful and petty things uh, that they can uh, figure out how to say on the social media, while still uh, purporting to be uh, a member of the organization, which I just I, I'm just clueless about this. I don't understand it. I got to tell you that way before I ever got on any kind of uh, public. Uh, forum or social media or something like that and talk bad about uh, an organization or, or anybody, anything, way before I did that, I would leave the organization, all right? Uh, I would not allow myself to get drawn into a situation where I was, uh, where I was acting uh, in an ungentlemanly fashion and just running my mouth in a hateful way, especially if I was still hanging on to my uh, my red hat and, and saying that I was an apple seed uh, instructor, uh, but on out of the other side of my mouth I was saying other things. I just I don't understand it. I, most of the uh, most of the goings on, most of the drama and the stuff, I don't understand anyway. All right, because uh, because my apple seed uh, is here in Texas, uh, unless I'm in Kentucky. Then my apple seed's in Kentucky. Uh, my apple seed isn't floating around in a nebulous fashion, living in some type of uh, uh, of a fairy tale world. It's on the line. It's on the line there, uh, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening, Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening. The things that go on anywhere else, I I don't know that I, that I would bother to get involved in anything else. Why? What good does it do? The only things that demand my attention are the folks that show up at an apple seed. That's the only that's the only place that I'm worried about. I'm not worried about anything else. I'm not worried about how about a policy on how somebody dresses or or anything else. I could care less. And I told you that uh, a while back that we had a bunch of folks on uh, on the social media talking about uh, <clears throat> uh, the money that Appleseed uh, is making, that they saw that $400,000 listed as uh, Appleseed Holding, and and by gosh, they wanted to know how it was going to be spent. Uh, And just because the organization had money, that it seemed suspicious. 
I'm just I'm blown away by this. Because an an organization has some money, it it is now suspicious. My gosh, they have some money, and because of that, I don't trust them. I want to know what they're doing with it. What does it matter to you uh, if an organization has some money or not? And listen, by the way, that that four hundred thousand, which is actually down from uh, what there was before, because remember we're doing a lot more events with a lot uh, fewer folks because we've been we made a, a couple of big jumps where we've been spreading out and uh, taking more events, but we're not getting more folks at each of those events. So the cost to Appleseed go up because at one time I believe there was a uh, over five hundred thousand dollars in the account. <clears throat> uh, regardless. That's not uh, the amount of money that's made every year. That's what has been made in the last six years of Appleseed. And uh, that's just what's in the the Appleseed, uh, the nonprofit uh, trust now. And I told you guys before, if you got any questions uh, about the money, then, uh, and for number one, I don't know why anybody would be worried about it or questioning about it or, or anything else. What What does it matter uh, to anybody about the money because it doesn't belong to Fred it belongs to the organization nobody in their right mind goes into a, a non-profit and messes with the money those people end up in prison alright if you got any questions about the money or how it's being spent then PM Believer on the uh, uh, on the forum uh, about all the rest of the the petty uh, Facebook Posting and mud slinging. Uh, you know, there's uh, there seems to be a lot of animosity now between uh, USRA and Appleseed, which once again I don't understand. You know, this happened once before. Uh, somebody wanted to uh, uh, they wanted to do something different, and because uh, Appleseed didn't. Uh, uh, didn't jump up and down and do exactly what they wanted. They said, "Well, we'll just uh, we'll just take everybody out of, out of Appleseed and we'll just start up our own group." Now, number one, <clears throat> Appleseed has always advocated uh, if you want to start an organization, but then by gosh, you get it started, you start it up. Appleseed has always advocated that, and uh, and we've always offered to help these organizations. But you know what? It never failed that they always. For whatever reason, they always went uh, to the different uh, public forums and stuff like that. The last one uh, went to on all the public forums, uh, complaining about Appleseed and whining and and bad mouthing until they got thrown off all of the other forums. You know what? Nobody wants to hear your your problems like that. They could care less. They have their own problems in their own forums. They got thrown off all of them. And then what what happened at the end of the the whole big dramatic thing, you ended up with three guys in this new organization. Three guys. And two of the guys were arguing with each other, and the third one came on and said, hey, guys, <clears throat> there's only three of us left, so so we can't afford to argue anymore. That was the last big uh, uh, dramatic organization that came out there and and started and and spent every bit of their energy trying to badmouth Appleseed. So 
like I said, I don't understand that. I don't understand the whole the whole thing. If you want to start another organization, that's fine. That's great. Uh, you'll get support from everybody. But I wouldn't want to be a part of an organization whose members uh, were allowed to slander uh, other people and other organizations. I mean, that's a bad way to start out. You know, very bad way to start out. <clears throat> okay, that's all I'm going to say about that. <clears throat> all right. Uh, what I said earlier was that we're going to talk about the one of the aspects of the American Revolutionary War, and of course, most wars that you don't hear much about, other than at Vietnam. You know, we, it was made uh, the the uh, prisoner of war situation was was made. Uh, made known through popular films at the times, you know, the Rambo and the Chuck Norris films and stuff like that, which really had no real uh, basis in 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 what went on with the prisoners, but nonetheless at least there was some discussion of it. Very seldom is there a discussion of of what happens to you in a uh, in a war when you're when you're captured by the enemy or you surrender. And uh, we're going to talk about some of that tonight, about what happened in the American Revolutionary War with the prisoners of war situation. And uh, <clears throat> I can tell you, I don't have the uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but I believe that uh, I believe that the last time I was reading about it, that the author was giving the uh, the the statistic that I believe you are 25 more times likely to die if you surrendered than if you fought in uh, the battles, right? And uh, so the prisoners, uh, the conditions of the prisoners in the American Revolutionary War were to a great deal uh, absolutely horrific for the uh, for the colonists who were captured. Now. You know, they both both sides uh, were at a uh, were at a hard place in order to deal with prisoners because uh, you know the regulars, the British regulars, were uh, thousands of miles away from home and and had no uh, no good place to keep them. And the colonists, they didn't uh, they didn't have any prisoner of war camps, etc. They had to you know, to deal with it uh, right then and there. Now, a lot of the folks were paroled, uh, which meant they were sent to uh, to towns or cities which were not on uh, any of the main battle areas that were far away from them. And they weren't put in prisons. They were just uh, sent to these cities and 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 told on their on their honor. And I'm sure there was a light guard there, but on their honor, uh, they were no longer allowed to fight they were no longer allowed to become uh to be combatants in the war and usually they were uh used as farm labor and stuff like that in order to earn their keep a great many of them uh ended up after the war not rejoining uh their british regular or hessian units they ended up staying in the colonies and uh, becoming americans <clears throat> all right we've got a, a great many hardship and atrocity stories from prisoners, both the American and British, but uh, but there there are really few facts and and almost no real reliable statistics. Now, just as 
neither the Americans nor the British were prepared to care for the sick and wounded. They were also unprepared to care for the prisoners. And uh, these elementary and familiar accompaniments of war seem to take both sides by surprise. And by that I mean, obviously they know, you know that if you're sending an army uh, to another country, that one of the results of that is you're going to have wounded, sick, and prisoners of war. But they, at this time, uh, because they were fighting in such in a, in a faraway place, they uh, neither side really was set up to take care of it. Neither side was set up that uh, to handle this. <clears throat> and it also cannot be said that either side really ever got over its surprise. You know, at the very close of the war, both the British cabinet and the Congress were playing fast and loose with the prisoners. And, uh, Neither army at any time during the war uh, did they make really any adequate preparation for the care of prisoners or for the orderly exchange or release of prisoners. Uh, It was something that that was just, it was kind of uh, improvised along the way, places to keep them and ways to feed them and uh, ways to exchange them, etc. It was called. It was all very haphazard. Uh, there was a uh, mismatic air of incompetence, spite, and brutality hangs over the whole story of the Revolutionary War prisoners on both sides. Now, from the beginning uh, to the end of the war, there was confusion on both sides about the status of prisoners because the British did not, at first, or for, anyway, for a long time. They did not concede the de jure existence uh, of the United States. That means that uh, they didn't recognize that the United States as a uh, as an entity, right? That means that the combatants of the United States were not recognized as uh, legal troops of a foreign nation. They were they. They were under rebel status. So uh, they adopted the logical but untenable position that American prisoners were not, in fact, prisoners of war, but traitors in rebellion against their lawful sovereign. The circumstances of war, and at least the, the threat of retaliation, persuaded them not to insist on this position or on its consequences. Yet to the very end, they refused to concede diplomatic immunity uh, to Henry Lawrence, who actually he languished in the, the, the Tower of London until 1782. Now, Americans were almost equally short-sighted toward the Loyalists, who had the bad luck to be captured. They insisted that these were not ordinary prisoners subject to exchange, but criminals who should be turned over to their states for punishment according to criminal statutes. So both sides, and that's one of the problems that you have with revolutions, uh, with revolutionary or civil wars, is you get a very tangled uh, web of uh, of combatants and non-combatants and the legal or uh, status of them. So you you have the on the one hand you have the British regulars saying that since America is not actually America, it's a British colony, that the troops that are fighting there are not actually, they don't deserve the status uh, that uh, would be given to troops of a 
foreign entity, of a foreign nation. They are traitors. They're rebellious uh, citizens of a sovereign nation. Now, that falls into a category where you can be shot and hanged on sight. The same thing with the loyalists, the Americans who wanted to remain loyal to uh, to England. But since they were not uh, citizens of England fighting in British regular units, then the colonists wanted them to be sent to their states and for them to be prosecuted under criminal statutes. <clears throat> All right? Uh, and... And neither side trusted the other side. Uh, and not only that, but you had, uh, at least in the beginning, and even all the way to the very end, because uh, there was certainly the case of the Captain Askill, uh, that we, we may get to that in a minute, but the, uh, the, the British regulars wanted to treat all of the uh, colonial, all of the rebels, they wanted to treat them as rebels. They wanted to hang them and shoot them. But there was always a threat of retaliation, which means that if you're going to if you're going to shoot and hang our guys, then we're going to march a column of British regular prisoners up, and we're going to shoot them in front of you and hang them in front of you. That means that your guys can only look forward to being killed if they get into our hands. The way that you're treating us, then we're going to kill you. We're going to kill your troops when we capture them. And uh, that was a threat that held the, the British regulars back. All right? And uh, it also said that neither side trusted the other. Uh, so some of the British officers held that they were not in any event bound by agreements with rebels and that they could violate their parole with impunity. The uh, Americans, in turn, dishonored General Gates' agreement with Burgoyne on the disposition of the so-called convention troops. Uh, that means that the British regulars who were uh, paroled, that means when they were captured and then they said, okay, we don't have any place to put you, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to make you sign this document saying that on your honor uh, you are paroled, to uh, return to England and not, again, set foot in the colonies as a combatant. And, you know, this was uh, this was not good in two ways, because, number one, uh, a lot of the officers felt that because they, were, they weren't dealing with a sovereign nation, they were just dealing with a bunch of rabble and rebels, that they did not have to honor their agreement, because the agreement wasn't made in an honorable fashion with honorable men. It was made with rebels. So they would return to fighting, or even if they honored their agreement, that just meant that they would return to England, and they could become, uh, as long as they weren't fighting in the colonies, then they were okay. But that meant that troops that were held in England for defense of the homeland could be released and sent to the colonies and be replaced by these troops who had been paroled out of the colonies. So either way, it wasn't that great of a situation for for the uh, the colonists as far as what they were doing with the prisoners. Now, we simply don't know how many prisoners were taken by the rival armies because there was no no good records uh, was kept. But there there is reason to believe that the numbers may have run about even. Now, the Americans made three 
major halls during the war. First there was uh, Trenton, then Saratoga, and Yorktown. Trenton accounted for, accounted for about 900 to 1,000 uh, of the prisoners, of the British regulars that were taken, British regulars and Hessians, because the at Trenton, the uh, the 1,000 prisoners taken there were mainly Hessians, mainly German uh, mercenary troops. Then Saratoga and Yorktown. Uh, Saratoga counted for about 6,000, and Yorktown for about uh, 8,000. So that's around fifteen uh, to 18,000 uh, troops that were captured, counting both the Hessian and the British. The British captured uh, around 4,000 in the fighting around New York City. Um, and remember, that was, the, that was the, the, the largest hall there, uh, which also included the uh, uh, Forts Washington and uh, – uh, it's escaping me right now, but – it also included the two forts that were captured. And, they, and then they captured another 5,000 at uh, Charleston. And British captures of American fishermen and seamen were substantial. There were well over 1,000 of those that uh, 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 prisoners that were still held, in the, they were still being held in English prisons at the close of the war. So British and American captures in the hard-fought campaigns in the Carolinas and along the far-flung frontiers probably canceled each other out. In any event, the inclination here was not to be bothered with prisoners, but to dispose of them in the speediest and most convenient way for each side. And neither side had made any adequate provisions for their prisoners. The Americans were constantly on the move, and they certainly didn't want to carry prisoners around with them. They'd have to feed them and clothe them and everything else. And the few cities which they did hold with any degree of assurance were not prepared to take over the responsibility for large numbers of prisoners. The British had a firm base only in New York, uh, or they also held they also held territories in Quebec and Halifax, and they did that, but they didn't have any facilities there to take care of their large prisoner halls. And the obvious solution was an exchange of troops, but. But there were huge difficulties uh, that got in the way of this. Not the least uh, was that the British had more to gain by exchanging than the Americans, right? Because uh, say you say you captured five thousand American troops. Well, there was still another one million nine hundred and ninety-five thousand Americans uh, in America. The British regulars, if you captured 5,000 of them, the only way that they were going to get another 5,000 troops was to send uh, 50 ships over, uh, 50 to 100 ships to carry those troops over. That's the only way they were going to get here. So the British had a lot more to gain than the Americans did, than the colonists did, by exchanging troops. Uh, Another solution was by releasing them on parole, but this was a very complicated situation, and we talked about this a, a while ago when we talked about the the mutual distrust and the mutual uh, problem with this, with folks saying, hey, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll accept parole, but then saying, you know what, I don't have to abide by my word because I'm, I'm not dealing with another gentleman, supposedly. I'm dealing with a rebel traitor. <clears throat> and... Uh, 
in in America, you know, it's a huge country that, uh, and the armies were so unorganized that uh, there was no satisfactory means of enforcing paroles. I mean, if you were if you were private so and so captured in such and such a place, and and you said, yeah, okay, here I'm going to sign that I'm not going to fight again. All right, and you do sign, and and say you're fighting again uh, somewhere, you know, a month later, and you get caught, not by that same group. Well, how are they ever going to know that you were caught unless unless somebody went through over there to that other unit, went through all their records, and you gave the right name? Uh, it's just it, it was going to be very difficult. Now, of course, if you got caught by the same guys and they had just paroled you, then it was pretty much a, a good bet that they were going to hang you this time. So, <clears throat> so both sides pretty much fell back on. Uh, on hastily improvised prisons, local jails, barracks, uh, warehouses, churches, underground mines, ships, whatever they had, whatever was at hand. And conditions in these prisons were almost always wretched. And sometimes, like in the uh, prison ships or the abandoned copper mines, the conditions were absolutely barbarous. But it's sobering to remember that conditions in prisons were just about as barbarous 80 years later at Andersonville, Libby, and Elmira. Do you remember these? These were the uh, American Civil War prison camps that uh, where they had horrendous conditions and unbelievable death tolls. <clears throat> On the whole, a lot of the prisoners in the Revolution was almost as desperate as a lot of the wounded. It's estimated that uh, 7,000 Americans perished on the prison ships in the Hudson, uh, just in the Hudson River there. Prison and escape uh, narratives are often exciting individually, but they tend to be monotonous collectively. For, for On horror stories, the law of diminishing returns sets in very speedily, you know. Uh, one imprisonment, after all, tends to be very much like another, and the bitterness and invective of the imprisoned, too, forms pretty much a pattern because, you know, everybody experiences close to the same thing, you know. So uh, so let me, uh, let me try and pick you out uh, several different letters uh, so that I'm not reading you uh, reading you a uh, <clears throat> a bunch of the same things. Now, and then of course, I'm going to be reading from uh, The Spirit of 76, and you can find this at Castle Books. Uh, by uh, It's edited by Commager and Morris. And like I've told you before when I read from this book, that uh, I really enjoy this because a lot of times if you read a, if you read a book, about the American Revolutionary War. You're going to be reading a book that uh, somebody else has edited and they put together. And the only way that they got this information was by reading these letters, by reading the accounts that are listed of the people who were there. And then they put together their stories and they tell you, uh, they're basically uh, telling you what the letter said. Well, we're just the good thing about this book that I like is that we're just reading straight from the letters, and uh, and at the same time, so when I read from this book, let me at the same time let me caution you that that uh, whatever these letters say, they're they're not from 
an individual who was watching uh, the American Revolutionary War on CNN. These folks only knew what was happening directly to them in their in their small area. So, <clears throat> uh, this letter is uh, is referring to John Leach and his companions who were suffering in a Boston prison. Now, the, the British did not bother to imprison uh, a lot of the American civilians during the the brief occupation they they had of Boston. But one of their victims was uh, the remarkable John Leach, who was accused vaguely of being a spy and taking plans. <laughs> and I guess that can cover a lot of stuff. Now, he was born in England. Leach had gone to sea early and had circumnavigated the globe no less than three times. This experience suggested to him the propriety of conducting a school of navigation, probably the only one of its kind in Boston. His prison diaries is very interesting for what it tells about the moral standards of stout Bostonians as it is for for what it's going to tell the prisons. All right? So this is a journal that John Leach kept uh, in his Boston Jail, G-A-O-L, in 1775. From Sunday, July 2nd to Monday the 17th. From the 2nd of July to the 17th, a complicated scene of oaths, curses, debauchery, and the most horrid blasphemy committed by the provost marshal, his deputy, and soldiers who are our guard. Soldier prisoners and sundry soldier women could vine for thefts, etc. We had some of the vilest women for our neighbors, some placed over our heads, and some in each room on rooms on each side of us, and they acted such scenes as was shocking to nature, and used language horrible to hear that came from the very suburbs of hell. When our wives, children, and friends came to see us, which was seldom as they were permitted, we seemed to want them gone, notwithstanding we were so desirous of their company as they were exposed to hear the most abandoned language as was grating to the ears of all sober persons. <clears throat> Friday, July 7th, my wife came to see me. She has attempted it since, but was denied sundry times, and I did not see her again till the 28th of July. We are very close confined, having the doors open for air sometimes one hour, in 24, and sometimes not at all. Monday the 17th, my son Titleston died, who I left well in my house. I was not permitted to attend the funeral, notwithstanding my letter to the general this morning requesting the same, or dismission, or trial. This evening the provost informed us there was to be held a garrison court of inquiry at Concert Hall tomorrow in consequence of my letter. We were desirous to prepare for trial. Now, remember, he he was a civilian. He wasn't arrested. Uh, he wasn't captured on a field of battle. He was uh, accused vaguely of being a spy and taking plans. <clears throat> Wednesday the 19th, escorted from jail again with the additional company of three sailors, thieves, and housebreakers. Surrounded by soldiers, we made a curious medley. The fly blowers examined, and the three sailors. Mr. Hunt, Mr. Eds, and Mr. Starr were asked who prosecuted them. 
and one Captain Sims of the regulars was summoned by Major Moncrief as evidence against Mr. Lovell and myself. Till this time, we did not know our crimes on what account we were committed, but now we found Mr. Lovell was charged with being a spy and giving intelligence to the rebels, and my charge, being a spy and suspected of taking plans, when Captain Sims appeared. He knew so little of us that he called me Mr. Lovell. He knew so little of us that instead of being just evidence, he appeared ashamed and confounded and went off. At 2 o'clock, we were sent back to our stone edifice under a strong guard, Thursday the 20th. Our five room companions were escorted as before with one carpenter, a barber, who swam swam to Cambridge and back again. The said carpenter and Mr. Hunt were examined. We were all sent back to jail again under a strong guard. This makes three days we were carried out to trial. Four hours each time, nothing asked us, all under the disgrace and contempt they could contrive. <clears throat> all right, this is that was uh, a couple of of the pages from his journal. <clears throat> now, we'll switch over to the... Uh, the American Prisoners in New York. And then here are three narratives of imprisonment in New York, headquarters of the British prisons. The account of Jonathan Gillette and Thomas Stone need a little introduction. Both were from Connecticut. Both were captured on Long Island, Gillette by the Hessians, Stone in the course of a raid on one of the British posts. Both have suffered imprisonment on a Jersey prison ship before being transferred to the equally notorious Sugar House in New York. Their narratives serve as an introduction to the story of the prison ships, shocking conditions among patriot prisoners in New York, and the benevolence of a courageous Quaker lady uh, are the story told by Robert Keith, who is a chaplain aboard the ship. <clears throat> and this is uh, Jonathan Gillette to Eliza Gillette at West Hartford, New York, December 2nd, 1776. Uh, my friends, no doubt my misfortunes have reached your ears. Sad as it is, it is true as sad. I was made prisoner the 27th day of August past by a people called Hessians and by a party called Jaegers, the most inhuman of all mortals. I can't give room to picture them here, but thus much. I at first resolved not to be taken, but by the importunity of the seven taken with me and being surrounded on all sides, I unhappily surrendered. Would to God I never had. Then I should never have known these unmerciful cruelties. They first disarmed me, then plundered me of all I had, watch, buckles, money, and some clothing, after which they abused me by bruising my flesh with the butts of their guns. They knocked me down, I got up. They kept on beating me almost all the way to the camp where I got shot of them the next thing was I was almost starved to death by them I was kept here eight days and then sent on board a ship where I continued 39 days and by them was treated much worse than when on shore after I was set on shore at New York I was confined under a strong guard till the 20th day of November after which I've had my liberty to walk apart over the city between sun and sun notwithstanding Their generous allowance of food, I must inevitably have perished with hunger, had not some friends in the city relieved my extreme necessity, but I can't expect they can always do it. 
What I shall do next I know not, being naked for clothes and void of money and winter present and provisions very scarce, fresh meat, one shilling per pound, butter, three shillings per pound, cheese, two shillings, turnips and potatoes at a shilling a half peck, milk, 15 coppers per quart, bread equally as dear, and the general says he can't find us fuel through the winter, though at present we do receive some coal. I was after put on board, seized violently with the dysentery. It followed me hard, upwards of six weeks. After that, a slow fever, but now I'm vastly better. My sincere love to you and my children. May God keep and preserve you at all times from sin, sickness, and death. Now, most of these are, uh, those last two were, uh, were, were pretty, uh, pretty pale, pretty tame. Uh, they are, there are much worse accounts. Let me, uh, let me read you one from William Slade, who records, uh, his imprisonment aboard, uh, a prison ship. These, uh, he was one of the prisoners from Fort Washington. <clears throat> Fort Washington, the 16th day, November A.D., 1776. This day I, William Slade, was taken with 2,800 more. We was allowed honors of war. We then marched to Harlem under guard where we were turned into a barn. We got a little rest that night, being very much crowded as some trouble, and I can't read the rest. Sunday the 17th, such a Sabbath I never saw. We spent it in sorrow and hunger, having no mercy shown us. Monday the 18th, we were called out while it was still dark, but was soon marched to New York, four deep, very much frowned upon by all we saw. We was called Yankee rebels are going to the gallows. We got to York at 9 o'clock. We were paraded, counted off, and marched to the North Church, where we were confined under guard. Tuesday the 19th, still confined, without provisions till almost night when we got a little moldy biscuit, about four per man. These four days we spent in hunger and sorrow, being derided by everyone and called rebels. <clears throat> Wednesday the 20th, we was reinforced by 300 more. We had 500 before. This caused a continual noise in a very big huddle. Just at night we drawed six ounces of pork per man. This we ate alone and raw. So they just cut off like a uh, six-ounce piece of pork. That's about the size of, uh, uh, in width of, say, uh, say your two fingers together. It's the length of your two fingers together. <clears throat> uh, Thursday the 21st, pass the day in sorrow, having nothing to eat or drink but pump water. Friday the 22nd, we draw three-quarters of a pound of pork, three-quarters of a pound of biscuit, one gill of peas, a little rice, and some kittles to cook in, wet and cold. Now, obviously, that that wasn't uh, for all of them. I mean, that wasn't for each man. That was for a group of them uh, to cook. Uh, Saturday the 23rd, we had camp stews, it being all we had. We had now spent one week under confinement, sad condition. Wednesday the 27th was spent in hunger. We are now dirty as hogs, lying any and everywhere. Joy's gone, sorrows increased. So Sunday the 1st of December, about 300 men was took out and carried up on board the shipping 
Monday the 22nd, early in the morning, we called out and stood in cold about one hour and then marched to the North River and went on board the Grovnor transport ship. There was now 500 men on board this ship. This made much confusion. We had to go to bed without eating. The night was very long. Hunger prevailed. Much sorrow. Saturday the 7th. Monday the 7th. Okay, Saturday the 7th. Uh, we drew a small piece of meat and, and some rice. This day drawed two biscuits a man for the next few days. Uh, this day the ship's crew weighed anchor and fell down the river below Governor's Island, fell up the East River to Turtle Bay, and cast anchor for the winter months. Sunday the 8th, this day we were almost discouraged, but considered that would not do. We cast off such thoughts. We spent the day hoping for good news. <clears throat> uh, let's see. Sunday the 22nd. Last night, nothing but groans and screams at night of the sick and dying. Men amazing to behold. So this is uh, this is three weeks into their confinement on board the ship. The deaths are multiplying. At noon, uh, a handful of meat and peas, weather very cold. Sunday, uh, Sunday's gone, and much sorrow. Monday the 23rd, uh, this morning Sergeant Keith, Job March, and several others broke out with the smallpox. Uh, about 20 dead here today that listed in the King's service. Uh, oh, about 20 here dead today, and then another 20 that enlisted in the King's service. Times look very dark, but we're in hopes of an exchange. Uh, deaths every day. People gone bad with the pox. Tuesday the 24th. Last night, very long and tiresome. And noon, rice and cornmeal. Uh, many sick. Uh, close to 30 dying, carried down. Uh, all faces have grown pale and sad. And that's the way that it went nonstop. As I told you earlier... Approximately 7,000 men died on the prison ships that were anchored in the Hudson. So, uh, so the the chances of you dying as a prisoner, or like I said, I believe that the 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 statistics were listed as being almost 25 times greater as a prisoner than if you uh, were in the ranks of a major battle. All right, so, uh, and you always, I mean, I think about this, and I think about that, uh, you know, that you would want your men to know that if they if they surrendered, there was a good chance that they were going to die, whereas if they stayed and fought, then, uh, then there was a good chance that they would survive the war. But, you know, you're always playing with a very double-edged sword there, because if you if you convince your men that if they surrender, then there's a good chance they're going to die, then uh, then they may very well uh, uh, they may very well try to to desert because I'm sure that a lot of folks think that well, if things get too bad, I'll just surrender. Uh, they don't consider that uh, that they may not let you surrender that that you may 
end up fighting a battle where no quarter is given, or that uh, if you surrender, that it's a good chance that you will die uh, in confinement. But certainly, uh, you want your you would want your troops to know at least at some point that that the option of surrendering should be the very very last uh, option that they consider because because so many of them were ready to uh, you know to kneel down and and hold their muskets above their head and surrender, but that could very well be signing their death warrant so. All right, uh, I hope that you guys uh, that listened last week for Sheriff Mack, I hope you uh, took the opportunity to to check out the websites that he listed. I don't know if the the call screen, if you have those uh, handy, if you can put them in the uh, uh, County Sheriff's Peace Officers Association and SheriffMac.com, I believe those are the the two websites because what Sheriff Mac is doing is a great service to the nation, and uh, and I think that he he went a long way in proving that that uh, what he's doing is important just by the fact that uh, that he he alone as one man stood up to the federal government. And stopped, uh, you know, they had got the Brady Bill through, but he stopped the uh, the rest of the Brady Bills that were in line and that were supposed to follow the original. He stopped them in their tracks. One man, by standing up and suing the federal government and uh, and stopping the uh, the unconstitutional laws that were getting ready uh, to be to be headed right toward us, and. He has not stopped in his quest to safeguard uh, and defend the freedoms and liberties that living this nation affords us. Uh, he's constantly at uh, on the road giving speeches about this, and like I said, the, the convention that they're going to have is very important. So I, I encourage you guys to go to the uh, 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 County Sheriff and Peace Officers Association website and go to uh, sheriffmac.com and read the information that he's put out there and if you if you can talk to your county sheriff then do that too because the county sheriff seems to be the uh the most important person uh, in the county the most important law enforcement officer for us to have on our sides and to be defending us and to be defending our rights under the Constitution within our counties, all right? <clears throat> all right, www.cspoa.org. And, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> and uh, uh, I look forward to seeing you this next uh, next Thursday, 7 p.m. Central. Uh, I hope everybody had a great uh, Thanksgiving, and uh, I look forward to you guys uh, again uh, next Thursday, 7 p.m. Central. Thanks, folks, and good night, everybody.